Amen. Good evening, everyone. Uh, let's turn our Bibles back to that passage in Luke chapter 21, shall we? It'll be really handy to have it open in front of you while we're walking through it uh, in the next few minutes. Um, as you're uh, making your way there, let's uh, bow our heads. Let's pray and ask God for help in understanding this passage. Father, as we just uh, heard uh, uh, Jake read to us and those very words of Jesus where he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but your word won't. Lord, what a stunning statement that is. The world as we know it will change, but your promises don't. So help us to approach your word now with humility to be taught and with uh, confidence to live in the light of all that it says, with your help, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So do you ever think that the world is going to end? Do you ever think that life as we know it will stop in some way? Well, plenty of people predict it, saying disaster is imminent and we need to do something now. There is a prediction of the future, that impacts today. So climate activists, for example, tell us we're just one de degree away from global disaster. So they block roads and throw orange powder over snooker tables to call on people to see the problem and to see the danger and to change before it's too late, to live in the light of the, light, in the, light of the future predicted. The Committee of Atomic Scientists do the same with their doomsday clock. I don't know how they get to decide this. I wonder how you get onto this committee. That's a, a, an aside, I guess. But the doomsday clock, of course, is not a clock. It's more like a barometer, actually. Uh, these folks really are, they're atomic scientists, but they're more like weathermen and weatherwomen uh, sampling the geopolitical atmosphere of the world in order to predict the likelihood of global catastrophe. As of last Tuesday, if you saw it in the news, the clock remains at 90 seconds to midnight, the closest it's been to, uh, well, global collapse. Cheery, isn't it? The point, though, is to urge governments, to urge people to press the government of their own nation to see the problem that is predicted, the future that is predicted, and change and do something about it today. The question is, how many people actually do? How effective are these things? We hear some predictions, we hear calls to change, but how effective are they? Now, some do, of course, whether by government pressure or even by government incentive, actually, in some small way, they make some kind of change that's for the good of the climate, like bag for life or something like that. People see what's coming, think, oh, we should do something and change. It's a good thing. But governments actually do it too by changing infrastructure or by sitting down for some peace talks with uh, a neighboring enemy. Now, but some see the future and think, oh no, let's do something about this future that's been predicted, so do something about it today. But many actually don't. Sometimes because they don't believe what is predicted, they downplay it. There's not going to be a big global disaster coming. I mean, get real. Every day is going to be just like today. Okay? Tomorrow will be another day just like yesterday. Everything just goes on 
as it does. Therefore, they see no need to change. I mean, predictions are just predictions, right? Like the weathermen, they get it wrong regularly. We don't know for sure if these predictions are weather tight. So, hey, we'll just keep going as we're going. But what if you knew for sure what would happen in the future? Would it make any difference to the way you're living today? Well, in this passage today, Jesus actually gives us great certainty about the end of the world as we know it. And in it, he says, the world is going to end. It's going to end in sudden judgment and cosmic cataclysm. He said there are signs that will signal its nearness, but he warns us about it now so that we can be watchful, but also so that we can change the way we live while we wait for its appearing. Let me give you a bit of background to the context, especially if you're here for Rooted. We're jumping in, you're jumping into a, a series that we're working through in Luke's gospel. We're in the final week of the life of Jesus here in chapter 21, and we're in Jerusalem. From that point on that, if you like that first Palm Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey to the hallelujahs and the praises, hosannas of the people, he's been in the temple, as it says at the end of the text, to in and fro, and he's been staying outside the city, coming in via the Mount of Olives, coming in, teaching in the temple, and he's having a lot of to's and fro's with the religious establishment and the way they're handling the temple. And the temple is the thing that's in, in view in this passage. It's everything that's happened so far in the preceding chapters since he came into Jerusalem has happened in the temple area. But this passage is talking about something, it's an event that happens outside on the Mount of Olives looking down on the temple. And that's when you see in verse 5 of our passage tonight that the disciples were marveling at its sight. That's a, just an artist's rendition. No wonder they marveled at it, though, because it was, for its time, an absolutely stunning piece of architecture. The stones themselves were amazing. Lots of them, uh, the majority of them, were cut from white rock. Some of them were actually the size of a, of a trailer on an articulated lorry. They were huge. It was a massive feat of engineering to put these stones together. And then, of course, they were decorated to the hilt. They were, many of them were overlaid with gold or decorated with gold and gems and so on. And the thing is, when somebody in Jerusalem looked on that uh, building back then, when an Israelite, a, a Jew looked on that building, that temple, they were not only amazed by it, they were proud of it. And then when they looked at it, what did they think about it? They think, this is, ever, is this ever going to go away, this thing? No, it just looked permanent. The whole city in itself seemed impregnable. But Jesus says something in this passage at the very beginning that wasn't just hard to believe, but hard for them to hear. Verse 6, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Imagine that. Imagine looking over that building and just thinking, this looks so permanent. And yet you're saying it's going to be torn apart like Lego bricks. How are we supposed to figure that out? How are they going to do that? It sounds impossible. And not just the temple, though. The city, too. Now, the interesting thing about when Jesus says this is that they've already heard Jesus talk about God's judgment on Jerusalem twice. 
Luke has already given account of that in chapters 13 and 19. So what's really interesting about this passage is that they don't say, why? It's kind of like they've got the point of that. But they ask instead, verse 7, when is this going to happen? And how is that going to happen? Well, Jesus answers their question in a way that combines really two events. That's what makes this passage slightly tricky to interpret. So Jesus talks about not just the destruction of Jerusalem in this particular passage, but the end of the world. And he doesn't just talk about the end of the world. He talks about the the judgment on Jerusalem, the sacking of Jerusalem. So we need to be clear on where that's taking place and where the dividing lines are as best we can. So there are two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and, if you like, the end of their age. That's verses 5 to 24. And then the destruction of the whole world that's predicted and the end of our age. That's verses 25 to 38. The call to them and to us, watch for the signs, stay alert and pray. Okay? In light of the future that's predicted, watch for the signs. It's going to happen. Stay alert and pray. Let's look at number one, shall we? Tell tale signs of the end of their age, verses 5 to 24. So in answer to their question, uh, when and how, Jesus gives them four things to watch out for that are particular to the destruction that is coming upon Jerusalem. And I'll tell you a little bit about the, the history of that a little bit later on. But the first thing he says, the first sign that they've got to watch out for is that they are not deceived by false teachers. That's what we see in verse 8. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. This is the kind of thing that's going to happen when the end of your age is upon you, okay? He says, deceivers are going to come claiming that they're me. They're going to appeal for a following and it's not me and don't follow, okay? That, and these things happened, of course, Religious zealots back in the day in the first century in Israel were hoodwinking people into joining an insurrection by claiming to be the kind of Messiah that Jesus of Nazareth never was. The one who, the kind of Messiah who would be the military king, the military upriser, and get rid of these Romans. But Jesus just says, watch out for people like that and do not follow them. And we know that the warning is necessary, of course. Because deception is hard to spot. People are fleeced and conned every day by people pretending to be something that they're not. Oh, he seems so genuine, you might say. But Jesus says, when you see phonies claiming to be me, mark my words, it's a sign that the end is near. And that's the first thing they've got to watch out for, the first sign. The second sign, watch verse 9 that you're not disturbed by, if you like, foreboding aggression. Now, news would reach their ears in years ahead of neighboring armies gathering at their border or zealot insurrectionists within it trying to agitate for war. Rebellion and invasion will intensify in their lifetime. You can actually go back if you're really interested, super interested, and read uh, Jewish and Roman historians who give perfectly like, voluminous accounts of these events. But imagine experiencing that. Imagine experiencing an army lining up along your border ready to invade or even making their way into your country and starting to strangle the life out of your key cities and infrastructure. Some of you sadly have had that experience. It would make all of us nervous and uneasy 
But Jesus says, when you see this happening, it's a sign that the, the, the end of this age, your age, is very, very close. But, he says, sounds a bit insensitive, doesn't it? Do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not happen right away, will not come right away. Now, it's not clear whether he means the end of uh, Jerusalem and the city itself because ultimately, as I'll say in a few moments, the, the whole, if you like, the strangling of the life out of uh, Jerusalem happened over a longer period of time, three years and then a really intense five months, and then it went all crazy at the end. Or it could be talking about that end, or it could be talking about the end end, like the end of all things, the judgment day, and Jesus bringing in the new heaven and new earth. It's hard to know, but... What's not hard to know is how reassuring this was to be for those who believed to realize that they had time, that there is time, time to change, time to think, time to make plans, time to decide what to do. And that's the second thing. First sign, false teachers. Second sign, foreboding aggressors. Third sign, that the end of their age was near was persecution. Verses 10 to 19 tell us that they have to watch that they're not distressed by fearful persecution. Now, this is how the disciples will know the destruction of the temple and its city is near. They, they'll be seized. They themselves will be persecuted, accused, imprisoned by governing authorities, whether in uh, religious authorities like synagogues or before kings, royal courts. And all, verse 12, all, Jesus says, on account of my name. Now, it only takes two hours to read the book of Acts. And uh, when you read it, you can see for yourself what they experienced in Jerusalem and in the other cities around. These things all happened. And, it's, it, and just as Jesus bore witness to himself, to God and his gospel before religious authorities and before governing authorities, the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate, so those who follow him, his disciples in particular here, will testify in just the same way, testifying to the truth about Jesus and his gospel. And Jesus says, don't be frightened by all of this. It's going to happen. In the same way that it's happened to him, it's going to happen to them. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be called suffering. But, but suffering is a planned means by which the gospel spreads. It's like the testimony of Jesus is made manifestly truer by the fact that those who should rightly deny it don't. It would make the bravest of us anxious, this kind of persecution. That's why in verses 14 to 19, Jesus tells them to make up their minds not to worry. Make up your mind not to worry, he says. Take time to actually consider all these different things that I'm saying about the end and about what's going to happen in the meantime and, and just think rightly about it. Set your minds in the right way. Don't let those deceptive or doubtful thoughts get in there and cause you to have a skewed picture of who I am or a skewed picture of what you need to do in order to prepare yourself for this suffering. 
No, he says in verse 15 that he's actually going to give them the words to say and wisdom for their defense of Jesus himself. They'll speak just as he has taught them. They'll answer questions according to his wisdom. So he not only instructs, he equips. The second reason why they should make up their minds not to worry, verses 16 to 18 tell us, not a hair on their heads will be missing. Now, you might say, hang on a minute. He's just talked about suffering here. But it doesn't mean that they'll be prevented from actual harm. You're right, verse 16, some of them will even be put to death. But it means that they will be protected through it. Like Jesus said back in Luke 12, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. No, this means that they can stand firm. And by standing firm, as the text says, verse 19, win life. Win life. Death is not loss to those who suffer in these ways. Indeed, to live as Christ, to die as gain, as the Apostle Paul reminds us. So that's a third sign that they, a predicted thing that should make them think and change and ready themselves now and be readier when it comes. They ask for signs that would help them discern when the temple's destruction would be near. And Jesus has said, false teachers, foreboding aggressors, fearful persecution. These are all things that followers of Jesus in that first century should expect to see. But one sign stands out regarding the temple itself and the temple's desolation. Verses 20 to 24. Watch that you're not devastated by Jerusalem's uh, desolation. Now, in verses 20 to 24, Jesus says, Jerusalem is going to be desolated, and here's what you should do. Escape. Run away and flee before it takes place. And Jesus says the sign that its destruction is near was when the army encamps against it. That's verse 20, or laying siege to it. When that happens, ditch the usual emergency protocols. Okay, whenever there was an invasion in those kind of places in those times, emergency protocol was clear and as simple. Leave the countryside, gather in the city, build up the walls, lock the doors, and man the gates. But not this time. Jesus says, flee to the mountains. If you're in the countryside, don't go anywhere near that city. It's going to be terrible. Just run away and go in the opposite direction. Get up into the hills and run for your lives. And people will be glad that they did. Because what he predicted actually happened. The destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is making this prediction around about AD 33. Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the temple itself destroyed in AD 70. But it actually started in AD 67. Here's a history lesson. Emperor Vespasian encircled Jerusalem. Titus' son was this master general. If you've ever been to Rome, you can go and see the Arch of Titus. You can see uh, a few little images carved into that arch of Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70. It's an historical fact. But Titus, the master general of Rome's army and would-be uh, emperor, took charge of the whole thing and laid siege to, to Jerusalem and it was punishment for a Jewish revolt in AD 66. 
It lasted three years, and like I said, it kind of started slowly and then intensified in the final five months. I guess you could say, if you want to describe it like an animal of some kind, uh, it's like a, Titus in a sense was like a boa constrictor. It, it was kind of like he wrapped a conscious and breathing Jerusalem in his coil and just kind of gently gripped it at first so that the thing, the city knew, oh, I'm trapped here. I'm not getting out of this. Until the final five months when the death squeeze properly started squeezing the life out of the city. Now what's striking about this particular text is that while history says Titus was general and, uh, and Rome was the aggressor, Jesus actually says in verse 22 that God was punishing his people. That's a really stark statement to read, but it's what the text says. God was punishing his people, verse 22, see it with me, in fulfillment of all that had been written. But Jesus is saying this when it hasn't even happened yet. But he's saying it will with absolute certainty. What was that all about? Here's what it was. They were being judged for breaking his covenant. God had outlined the terms and expectations way back, especially there are a number of passages that you can go to to see this, but Deuteronomy 28 is one of the clearest. When Moses is given final words and instructions to Israel, including God-given blessings about this is what it'll be like for you if you walk in love and faith and obedience to him, this is what it will be like though if you don't, if you start running after other gods and breaking his commandments. Well, Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 50 outlines the consequences of the latter. Let me just read a small section to you. It says, because, so this is written like 1,500 and more years before this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. A remarkably accurate prediction. Not just of Roman Empire, of many empires, clearly, but still... Christian, Roman, Jewish historians say as many as 600,000 Israelites contracted into their capital when that siege started. Those who left when the gates were breached fell and blood was said to run down the streets. Titus in particular demanded that the temple be razed to the ground, burnt to a crisp. The heat according to Jewish historian Josephus, was so intense that the gold melted and ran down the cracks between the cracks of the stones. Guess what Titus ordered? Every stone be upturned. Retrieve all the gold. No stone left on another. Every one of them thrown down. What is incredibly fascinating about this event is that while so many Jewish people died, barely any Christians did. There were a growing number of believers in Jerusalem and surrounding areas, we know that, but both Josephus and a Christian historian called Eusebius say they left when the soldiers gathered before the gates were shut. 
Surely see in the signs that the end of their age, the end of Jerusalem itself, was near. The great fortified city was going to be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is, the age of the gospel is over. Now you're like, I feel like I'm back at school in history class. I'm, I'm fighting back a yawn. What's the point? Glad you asked. Especially if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You're like, I thought I was going to come here and hear about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and about resurrection to eternal life and stuff that Christians believe, not a history lesson. Well, it's relevant. Because I would say, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't come to him for forgiveness of sin, I wonder if you see what this passage tells you about Jesus. That he actually does tell you the future with undeniable accuracy. Like many tried to do that, and they failed. But Jesus predicted the future from his own death and resurrection to the literal military destruction of the temple in the city, and he's more accurate than, than anyone this world has ever known. And the reason for that is that he says who he says he is in the entirety of this gospel account and in the entirety of this Bible. He is the divine son of God, God in the flesh who came to rescue us from the brokenness of this world, and in particular, our own sin. But you know what this makes him? If he can say, this is what's going to happen 30 years before it happens, and it happens, don't say lucky. It's not luck. It makes him trustworthy. That's what it makes him. It makes his claims about himself true, the question is, do you live like he is, and would you be prepared to? Can you afford not to, given what we're going to look at in point two? He was spot on about Jerusalem's destruction. What would make you think that he's wrong about the end of the world that he predicts? Take him at his word and turn to him in faith before it's too late, with great confidence too, then you too can stand firm and win the eternal life that he won on the cross when he died for all who'd believe his word and put their trust in him. Do that tonight. If you'd like to find out more, we've got little, those little green books over there in the connect corner, our little Mark's Gospels. We'd love you to take one of those away. It's just another account of the life of Jesus and his teaching that would be worth spending time just reading over and thinking through. But those of us who are believers, what, what, is it, what difference does this make for us? What does this prediction of Jerusalem's fall mean for us? It means we can have confidence in God's word about all things. Jesus isn't wrong, even when he predicts things that are decades or millennia in the future. And it's important to realize that because we, as we'll see shortly, we do go through some of the same things that they, go th that they went through. We experience persecution in different ways. We experience anxieties about all kinds of things in life. But confidence in God's care to prepare his people for hard things is what we can have. These are just two of the things that this first section produces in us. So when we face false teaching, persecution, we can watch out as those who are warned. And as Jesus said, don't be deceived. Don't follow those who teach stuff different to what's in here. 
or who twist it and contort it to suit their own means. And don't be distressed either. Stand firm, win life by having confidence in his word. Now, some might say, why spend so much time looking at this event in the past? Because the reason is Jesus presents the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple really as a trailer. It's a, he puts it deliberately together in order to provide us with a snapshot of the main event to come. AD 70 is just a picture. The main event is ahead of us in our future. Luke has already told us twice that it's coming, the final judgment, accompanied by cataclysmic signs, not even local, but global. It's astonishing to read this. But this should make us ask questions like the disciples asked. When? How? How do we know when it's coming? What should we do to get ready for it? Because it's coming. And this is point two, and we slightly quicker, slightly said, telltale signs of the end of our age. This is verses 20. 5 to 38, the end of our age, this age, the age where the gospel is going out to all nations. Now, verses 25 to 28, Jesus basically says that certain signs will precede his coming. But there will be signs, he says, in the sun, the moon, and the stars, cosmic signs in the skies and also on the earth that will cause way more anguish than what these atomic scientists do with a doomsday clock. There will be turmoil, he says. The very fabric of the things that we considered solid and unchangeable, like the sun and the moon, more solid and substantial even than the temple in Jerusalem back then. He says they're going to stretch and tear. The, the terror will be such that people faint, passing out in fear. You ever seen anyone pass out in fear? Like with the dentist needle, or with the dentist needle, or other dentist needle things. You see these kind of things happening all the time. Like something so simple as a minuscule scratch, scratch, can make people faint. But imagine the terror that will make people faint when they face the undoing, the unzipping of the earth. I mean, the closest we've had anything like to anything like that uh, that Jesus is describing, I guess, would be natural disasters. We've seen intense warfare, even in the last 100, 150 years, but we haven't experienced anything like the kind of thing that Jesus describes here. But Jesus then seems to suggest an intensity of cosmic shuddering and human despair that situates these events in some way close to his actual appearing. And verse 27 says this, at that time, when you see these different things happening, these signs, these cosmic signs, you'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, Son of Man just in case you don't know, is Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's the thing, it's the name he most often uses to refer to himself. And it's a title picked up from an Old Testament passage written hundreds of years before this, Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about this son of man who's clearly a human being, but has divine attributes, he, attributes. He is he is he is a man, but he is sovereign. He's given power and majesty and glory. The Son of Man will come 
in a cloud with power and great glory. In other words, he'll return, and as is described elsewhere in the New Testament, it will be absolutely unmissable. It will be, and the consequences of that event will be absolutely unavoidable. He's describing in that verse 27, the end of things as we know it, or else the beginning of the end of it. Because that day of the return of Jesus is the day the world is judged, and his appearing is the, is the beginning of all things being made new. Now, that needs a whole lot more explanation that I really do not have time to go into tonight. But if you're, suffice to say, for those of us We'll experience it differently and based on what we have made of the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Like the single determining factor in whether or not that day of his appearing will be your greatest joy or your worst fear is based on answering the question, do you believe in Jesus? If the answer is yes, heaven, glory, welcome, you'll look forward to it as we'll see shortly. If you don't, it won't be. And Jesus has been so kind as to lay all this up front so that people can make sure that they, no one goes unwarned about this. For Jesus says, when we see signs that cause others to faint and cower, we who actually believe the gospel and trust in him will stand up, he says, and he says, lift up your heads. Don't cower back. There's other passages in Isaiah, for example, that say that when at the return uh, of the Lord, there will be people who will cry for jagged mountain rocks to fall on them, to hide themselves. Better that than to actually meet the risen and returning Lord Jesus without being ready for his judgment. But he says, for you who believe, stand up. Lift up your heads in the midst of all that cosmic cataclysm and fearful events. It's like you stand up to welcome it because it'll be the day that you've been waiting for your entire life. And I hope if you are a believer, you're looking forward to it. Because for us, it will be redemption. For us, it will be salvation. For us, it will be new creation if we believe in his name. How do we know if it's true? How do we know he's not pulling the wool over everybody's gullible eyes? Well, he wasn't wrong about Jerusalem, was he? He was deadly accurate. Now you might say, well, uh, great, he was true and he was accurate back then, but what if he's changed his mind? What if he reneges on his promise? What if he looks on us and sees this lot are an absolute bunch of numpties? Let's just scrunch it up and start again. We can worry. I mean, that, you know, you might think that could happen until you read verses 32 to 33 when he says his words will not pass away. Many things do. And when they do, we memorialize them. We do our best to remember the thing or the person that was. But Jesus always is. And as he says here, so are these words. So are his words. So are his promises. They are, they are full. They are right. They are true. And he will never renege on a promise. 
So not only is every word of Christ certain, it never passes away, never dies, never falls by the wayside. The word of the Lord stands forever. The promises of Christ never expire, which makes what he says here regarding us, standing firm, lifting up our heads. It's an eternal word, an eternal promise, forever true, and it outlasts the thing that we could, that, that could, the things we think could never change, expire, or break, like the sun. It's astonishing. Now, what should this produce in us? Certainty. Verse 31, when you see these things happening, the things he's predicted, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It's coming. It's really close. And you can be ready for it. Indeed, verses 32 to 33, are, they're for us. We are the generation that this Jesus is talking about here. I think this word generation is, should be understood in terms of not just like, well, I mean, we often think about generations in terms of uh, lifespans or age brackets. And we talk about generation Z, generation, I can't even remember what they're called now. But Jesus seems to use the word here to refer to this age that we are in between his ascension and his second coming as this generation of his people in the new covenant era. He uses, God uses the word similarly early on in the book of Genesis. But given all that precedes this coming of the Son of Man, coming in the clouds and with power and with great glory, given what happens when he appears, Jesus basically offers his church two crucial instructions to finish this off. Verses 34 to 38, when he says, the Son of Man is coming, therefore watch and pray. Verses 34 and 35 say, care should be taken to stay alert, brothers and sisters. Stay alert to this. Recognizing it's really easy for our hearts to be easily burdened, says, by a concern for lively living. That's the carousing. Or to look for escape, that's the drunkenness and the sinfulness of that. Or by worry, by being anxious. Now the first two are the kind of things that the world tells us to live for. The third thing is what the world says effectively, everybody does, it's fine. But what do these things do? The carousing, the drunkenness, the anxiety, they make us careless. They make us afraid. They make us less likely to keep watch. They make us more likely to doubt. And those who don't watch, Jesus says, will be surprised by his return and therefore not ready to meet him. All of a sudden, snap, the day comes in you, verse uh, 34, Jesus says, like a trap. And you're like, where did that come from? But we are to be those who are so watchful that though you don't know when it's coming, still, if it happened in 20 minutes' time, you'd be ready. If it happens in 20 years' time, we'd be ready and rejoicing. Now again, if you're here and not a Christian, these three concerns, carousing, drunkenness, and anxiety, do they describe your life? The danger of each of these is that they stop you watching for the signs. They're the things that make you take your eyes off Jesus and put them only on yourself. Well, Jesus gives this warning to say, don't be like that. 
And brothers and sisters, even young people here from Rooted, I think these are the kind of things that we can often find ourselves when we say we believe in Jesus and we're free of those things. We still find ourselves kind of longing for them a little bit when we see our friends participating in these kind of things. But the idea in this text I want you to see is that these things actually burden us. In other words, they put a big weight on you. And they make it hard for you to stand up and stand firm. But let the unfeeling word of Christ straighten out our thinking and ready us for his appearing. Take care to stay alert. And lastly, to pray. Verse 36, care should be taken to pray. Watching, verse 36 tells us, is accompanied by praying. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Pray, escape, stand. Pray, escape, stand. So if we're looking to live freely, to be careful and to be always on the watch, we must give each day, give time each day to pray. But when was the last time that we prayed that God would enable us to escape everything that's about to happen? That's not been on my prayer list. And that struck me this week as I studied this. When was the last time we prayed that God would enable us to stand before the Son of Man? Now, Jesus isn't saying, and neither am I, that, you know, you've got to do this or else your salvation is at risk. No, you're not saved by your praying. But he is saying one of the signs that confirms your salvation, one of the signs that helps to ensure that you are, you're, one of the practices that helps to ensure that you are ready for him when he comes, is that you pray. And there's something about prayer in this context here that I think shows it's more than just asking for stuff. We know that. Jesus is talking about putting the physical effort into trying to stay awake spiritually by praying. Prayer is one of the ways that we most obviously and actively keep ourselves awake and alert to our spiritual life and to his return. And this passage surely had a big influence on his disciples. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Church family, I'm sure some of us are going great guns with our praying, but how much time have we given to thinking about what we pray for? And about how much of it is a gift? I would like you to pray for me. I would like us to pray for each other in this matter this week. It's a gift to us from God to keep us sober-minded about the world and its distractions as much as it is about asking God to give us things. If you worry a little bit that you might not be ready for his return just yet, then before you go to bed tonight, just pray and ask him to help you be ready. So do you ever think the world is going to end? Plenty of people predict it, saying, ah, disaster is imminent. We need to do something about it. Plenty of people get it wrong. Jesus uniquely and wonderfully gets it right. The question is, will we do anything about what we've learned tonight? And what we've learned particularly about him and his predictions and the accuracy of them.
Will we change how we live in the light of the, uh, this impending danger, this cataclysmic return, the judgment to come? Watching and praying so as to be found escaping and standing, speaking and living so as to warn others to escape it too? Or will we remain undecided or skeptical? Yeah, just like the weather might not be right. Well, this text has given you strong evidence for the fact that he is. And doubting the events and the terrors described, punished without escape, Jesus, I, I want to say to you, taking Jesus at his word is not daft because his words never pass away. They outlast the years and they give you the most solid foundation to stand on in life and the ultimate protection for when that day comes. So believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Put your confidence in his word and never, ever be disappointed. Let's take a moment in the quietness to pray in response. As the band come up, we will then sing. tonight. Thank you for showing us the trustworthiness of Jesus' words and all that he predicts about the future. Thank you for the certainty that we can have based on what he predicted about what is to us now history. Help us to see that he's trustworthy and true and entirely believable in what he predicts about our future. And please, Lord, help us to stand and look forward Help us to watch and to pray and so not only escape judgment, but win life. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand and sing of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. Let's stand and sing.